1. Uh, Libby has very helpfully printed out for us uh, Ephesians chapter 1 from verse 1 through to verse 14. And why that's so good and important is because over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be working our way through what's called the prologue of um, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And indeed, I'm, I'm putting out the challenge to us all that we might each week memorize the next verse that we're going to be looking at. So this week we're up to verse 4, um, and so hopefully by the end of the next couple of months you'll, you'll memorise all the words that are on here in this prologue. Uh, one of the reasons why I think if you turn to the front of your orders of service you'll see I've written a little bit of a blurb this week about the importance of memorising scripture. Um, I've tend to notice that unfortunately we're not as good as, at this as we probably once were as Christians. It's not... A common thing for people to be memorizing scripture. Um, but there's great benefits, and I've tried to list some of them out there for you. And again, I just want to put out that um, challenge and that encouragement for us all to be meditating on God's word, because that's what really meditating is it's chewing on God's word. Just like you would chew gum, um, we chew on God's word. Um, and as you chew on it and as you meditate on it, it becomes a part of you and it has enormous benefits for us. Today I'm going to be reading from verse 1 through to verse 4. And this is God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Let's pray. Lord, what a great blessing it is to meet together this morning as your people. I ask, Lord, that you give me strength as I preach your word. And Father, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us all, that we might understand your word correctly. Humble our minds, Lord. Give grace to our hearts that we would believe your promises. Father, help us to know you better. And may we see the riches of Christ and all that he has done and won for us. Lord, thank you for this time. We thank you for the precious truths that your word contains. We ask for your blessing now, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we looked in particular at verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1. And it's about how we have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. And this is obviously an, an incredible thing. I mean, how do you possibly get your head fully around what that means? It's just so amazing as to be almost unbelievable. But as we come to verse 4, we start to see the riches of God's treasure chest being unpacked. And the very first one that we are exposed to is that we have been chosen 
in Christ. This is such an important doctrine that we really need to slow down and consider carefully what it means. Because the pastoral implications for us are extensive. Turn with me to John chapter 15. Because this is a truth which is clearly taught in Scripture and that we need to firmly grasp. John chapter 15, and I'm just going to look at the first part of verse 16, which is where the Lord Jesus himself says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. As in salvation, so in Christian service. It's the Lord who chooses us. It's so obvious when you stop and think about it that there should really be nothing controversial about this at all. Especially when we come to chapter 2 of Ephesians and you learn that you and I are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's what we're like before we are born again in Christ. We are dead. We're not sick or even terminally ill. We are dead, which means we have no ability to do anything unless God should come first and sovereignly do something to us. But step back for a minute and think about this more broadly. Did any of the 12 apostles choose to follow Jesus in the sense of to become an apostle? No. It was he who, after an entire night on the mountain, chose certain men to be his apostles. That was his prerogative. That was his choice. And so it's entirely appropriate for Jesus to say that they did not choose him, but he chose them to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Which is why the Bible says that even our good works that we do are a gift from God and not something that we generate in and of ourselves. Again, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. Another example is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's where the Apostle Paul, starting at verse 26, says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential and not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are are so that no one may boast before him. Now, isn't that amazing? God often chooses those whom the world would never desire or affirm. I heard once that the Queen of England 
said that she was so grateful for this passage and particularly that Paul chose the words, not many. In that not many were influential or not many were of noble birth. But as a believer in Christ herself, the Queen recognised that occasionally some of them were. (laughs) Some of them were influential. Some of them were of noble birth. And she humbly confessed that she too was one of them. But that not only confirms the truth of what Paul is saying, and that is... Most of us who trust in Christ, or can I say have been chosen by him, are not any of those things. We're not wise or influential or of noble birth, at least not from the world's perspective. I should also add at this point that this is precisely what the world would have thought of Jesus. For instance, in Isaiah 53, we read, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In God's plan... His son was to be given no beauty, no strength, no charisma, no power, nothing which from a human perspective would have drawn us to him or attracted us to believe in him as the saviour. And that's not why we have believed in him, is it? We put our faith in Jesus because we have been inexplicably drawn. We could do no other because before we had chosen him, God had chosen us. I've shared with many of you this story before, but there was a lady in my previous congregation in Sydney who was from Malaysia. And uh, she came out here to go to university in Sydney. And her mum made her promise that before she came out to Sydney that she would not become a Christian like her cousin had. She says, of course not, mum. I'm a Buddhist. We were raised Buddhist. I'm not going to become a Christian. Don't worry about me. She came to Sydney. Her flatmates happened to be Christians. The first week she was here, they, they said to her, would you like to come to church? And she goes, they were such nice people. She said, Mark, I thought, what harm can it do? I'll go to church. The very first time she'd ever been to church, the minister at the end of the sermon said, who would like to become a Christian? She said, you wouldn't believe it, Mark. I put up my hand. (laughs) And as I was putting up my hand, I thought, what are you doing, hand? I said that I would never do this but I could do no other. I was inexplicably drawn to the Saviour. There's another really helpful passage in this regard, and it's found in John chapter 6. 
And it really captures the balance particularly well. It's where Jesus says in verse 37, this. And read this carefully with me. John chapter 6, verse 37. In fact, if, there's, if you only get one thing out of today's sermon, I, I hope it's this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Isn't that just so precious? All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Later on in verse 44, Jesus says something similar. He says, and this will humble us, okay? So if you're still struggling with this, prepare to be really shocked. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. This is such a profound and precious truth, friends. Because it shows that even our ability to come to Jesus and believe is a gift from God. And if that's the case, our salvation is eternally secure. For no one can snatch us out of the Lord's hand. In fact, it's God's will that none are lost. I know this raises a lot of questions for people, such as, well, why hasn't the Lord chosen everyone to be saved? Or that's not fair because that means that some people won't ever come to saving faith. But I want you to stop and reflect on what you and I, who do believe, have been given. If you believe in Jesus, then that is a gift from God. We have been blessed in that we have been chosen. Do you see how infinitely precious and even glorious that is? Do you see that? My son Ben talked before about what the Apostle Paul teaches in Romans 9. We don't have time to go into it all now. But as the potter, God has chosen some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use. I realise that this is something that many Christians find difficult to accept. But it's completely his prerogative. As the creator, he can do with us anything he likes. In his holy and perfect love, though, he has chosen to have mercy on who he wants to have mercy and to harden whom he wants to harden. Maybe we struggle with this because deep down we still want the prerogative of being God. We saw a really clear example of that, didn't we, in our reading from the book of Exodus. 
there the Lord explicitly says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. Why? Because that is how God will achieve glory for himself. You might object that that doesn't seem fair. But you have to keep in mind that the Lord is empowering Pharaoh to do what his heart already wants to do. So it's not like it's anything different. Many times in Scripture, Pharaoh is described as hardening his own heart himself. The great Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, has a really helpful thing to say at this point. One day, a woman in his congregation came up to him after he'd preached on a passage much like this, and she expressed her ease at what the Apostle Paul was teaching. Spurgeon himself agreed and said that he found it all very, very troubling. What is your exact issue, he said. Well, I can obviously understand why God would say that Jacob I loved, because that is who God is and therefore what God is supposed to do. But I'm having real difficulty this morning coming to terms with how he can say that, but Esau I hated. To which Spurgeon replied, my dear, I've never thought of it like that. I've always understood why God would hate Esau. I could just never in my life understand how he would love Jacob. It's a really important point because what we have often failed to acknowledge is how truly guilty you and I are before a holy and living God. None of us deserve to be saved. None of us. And if God were to be completely just, if you want justice from God, then he would send you to hell. But in his infinite mercy and grace, some of us are not. Some of us are chosen, called, and redeemed. You see, just consider the second part or the aspect as to what Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 4. For he chose us in him when, friends? Before the creation of the world. God didn't choose us by looking into the future and seeing who would be worthy. No, even before he created the world, God had those he had chosen in mind. Once again, there are a number of really helpful passages of Scripture on this point. The first is by the Lord Jesus, and it's found in Matthew chapter 25. I realize this is controversial, so we're going to do a little bit of Bible flipping. Matthew chapter 25. In the midst of his parable regarding the sheep and the goats, Jesus says at the end of time, there will be a great separation between the two, between those who believe and those who do not, between those who are sheep and those who are goats, between those on his right and those on his left. And then he says in verse 34 this, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you when? 
since the creation of the world. Do you see how far-reaching God's plan of salvation is? Even before he created the world, he had in mind who he was going to save. And this is because not only did he know whom he would choose, but he also had planned that Jesus would die for their sins. Even before he created the world. That was the plan of redemption even before the fall had occurred. If you turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1, I'll show you what I mean in a bit more depth. These are really incredible truths to get your head around, aren't they? But I want to encourage us all to resist the temptation this morning of throwing our hands in the air and of saying, oh, it's all too hard. Because really it's not. You just have to humble yourself before God's word and consider seriously what it says. And why that's so important is because it's the foundation of how you and I who believe are made right with God. So look at verse 18 and following of 1 Peter chapter 1. It says this, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Chosen before the creation of the world, revealed now. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now, again, this is obviously a profound theological truth. I often think when we discuss doctrines like this, it's like flipping the hood to a car. I'm not much of a mechanic myself. I go to the mechanic Everything really is based on trust. He gives me a list of all the things that he's fixed. And I go, yeah, okay. I believe you. I trust you. If you say so, I just want to turn the key on and not hear the knocking noise. And if it runs smoothly, great. And I think that's what it's like for a lot of people as Christians, isn't it? As long as I believe in Jesus and I'm saved, I'm okay. But every now and again, you've got to do it... Uh, a service check, and you've got to lift the hood, and you go, wow, look at that. Who would have thought those spinning parts going that way and that way all come together to make a car go forward? That's what we're doing this morning. You turn the key, trust in Jesus, you're saved. That works. But sometimes you've got to pop the hood. Sometimes you've got to look at the mechanics of what's going on underneath and be amazed. Because what we see is that God had not only planned to redeem those whom he had chosen before the creation of the world, but that he'd also planned that his beloved son would die for their sins. The death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus 
was also part of God's eternal plan. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a plan B. It wasn't no, oh no, how am I going to fix this? It was all part of his plan. If you turn over to Revelation chapter 13, I think I can prove it to you. In the midst of talking about the beast which comes out of the sea and who seeks to lead the whole world astray, in other words, the ongoing influence of Satan, John writes this in verse 8. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All that is whose names have not been written in the book of life, belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Once again, this is absolutely incredible. Because you are either with the Lamb or you are with the beast. You are a follower of Christ, or this is going to be the most offensive thing you're going to hear this morning, if, particularly if you don't believe, or you're a follower of the devil. But we are all worshippers of one of those two things. The question this morning is, who do you worship? Do you worship Jesus or do you worship Satan? Because just like with Pharaoh, the Lord has planned for those who don't worship the lamb to worship the beast. Jesus says, you don't think I'm good enough to worship? Okay, you worship the devil. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, we're all worshippers. It's not like we have the chance to worship nothing. Because if you're not worshipping Christ, then the scriptures say that you're worshipping the devil, even if you don't believe in or consciously acknowledging him. So the question to you this morning, are you living for Christ? Have you humbled yourself and cried out to him for salvation? Can you say, like my Christian sister did in Sydney, yes, I'm inexplicably drawn and I believe. Or are you proudly living in rebellion to him? Are you like Pharaoh, who hears about the Christ, who hears about the lamb that was slain, but, hard, but your heart's hard? Jesus says, come, come to me and be saved. Believe in me and be redeemed. Turn from your sin and be forgiven. Live in the newness of life which comes from my Holy Spirit. You see, what is God's purpose in all of this? It's so that, well, Paul tells us in verse 4, doesn't he? Have a look at it again. We should be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, I think there are two related aspects to this. On the one hand, we have been made holy and blameless, we who believe in Jesus, through his sacrificial death. For on the cross, he provided the perfect act of atonement to provide forgiveness of sins once and for all. This is another blessing which will, God willing, come to in a couple of weeks. Have a look down at verse 7. I'll show you now. It says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Isn't that incredible? This is precisely what we have received 
in union with Christ. If you believe in him, you have redemption. You have the forgiveness of all sin. His blood has washed it all away. So now, even now, we are justified in his sight. You know, if you stumble on that word, just think of it like this. Justified is just as if I'd never sinned. But being holy and blameless doesn't stop there. Because on the basis of this forgiveness, we are now being increasingly made holy. One of the best passages in explaining this connection is found in Hebrews chapter 10. Please turn over to it with me and we'll have a look at this together. I've got to say I'm pretty excited about this. Hebrews chapter 10 and I'm going to read from verse 11 through to verse 14. I'll give you a moment. As I said, I'm pretty excited. This is one of my favourite verses because it just so beautifully explains the Christian life from the Old Testament perspective. Okay, Hebrews chapter 10 starting at verse 11. It says, day after day, every priest, this is in the Old Testament, stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, let me just stop there for a moment and point something out. In the temple of God in the Old Testament, the tabernacle as it was moving around and then finally the temple, there were seven pieces of furniture. Another good series for another time, right? There was the bronze basin filled with water. There was the bronze altar which sacrifices um, had to be made. There was the golden candlestick upon which they had seven arms representing the people of God or the light of of God. The golden altar on which incense was offered. A golden table with 12 loaves of bread which were always freshly put onto it. And then in the Holy of Holies, there was two other pieces of furniture. There was the Ark of the Covenant in which you had contained in it, you know, the Ten Commandments, a jar of manna and... um, Aaron's staff, which had budded. And then finally, the final piece of furniture was the atonement cover, which went on top of the Ark of the Covenant, or it was sometimes called the mercy seat. It was where God himself was enthroned. Seven pieces of furniture. All of these were prescribed to be there by God himself. I didn't make this up because it was a reflection of what was actually taking place in the heavenly temple. But you know what was missing in the temple? It's so obvious that we immediately overlook it, but it's something that you and I enjoy every week here at church, you more than me. There were no chairs. And the reason why that is so important is because the priest could never sit down. His work of actually offering atonement was never completed. But what happened when Jesus, 
our great high priest offered his perfect sacrifice of atonement once and for all. What happened? Verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 10 tells us he sat down. He stopped working as a priest making sacrifices because on the cross, he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. Now, most of us are already familiar with that, but just take a look at what the author of Hebrews says next in verses 13 and 14. He says, since that time, since that time he sat down, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool, which is itself quite incredible, isn't it? He's sitting down and he's just going to put his feet up on his enemies, right? Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Are you and I already perfect in God's sight? Or are we being made holy? Yes. We have been made perfect in God's sight through the perfect act of atonement that Jesus offered on the cross. And in that sense, we are justified. But we are also being made holy in the here and now. We are being transformed more and more into God's image. As we forsake sin, as we practice virtues, put on righteousness, this is what we have been chosen for, friends. To be cleansed and to be changed. Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1, if you would, and take a look at what the Apostle applies or how this, uh, the Apostle applies this truth. Because both Paul and Peter teach exactly the same thing. Verse 22 of 1 Peter 1, we read this. Verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, that is, now that you have believed in Jesus, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. Why? Because we've been born again. The imperishable seed of God's word has given us new birth. As Peter says at the end of verse 25, you might go, when did I get this seed? You got it this morning. It was the word that was preached to you. The word that was living and active. The word that has divine power. That word that you've been hearing this morning has the power to regenerate you and give you eternal life. Because through those words, God speaks to those whom he has chosen. And you will either believe it and receive it, or you'll harden your heart and reject it. What will you do? To those whom he is calling to believe in his son, it's irresistible. Do you hear his voice? Do you sense his spirit speaking to you, irresistibly drawing him to 
himself. Stop rejecting. Believe. Turn from sin. Turn from religion. Turn from self-righteousness. Turn from being a good person and admit that you're a sinner and be saved. But what if you've already done that? What is the Lord calling on you and I to do? Well, as we've already seen, he's calling on us to live a life of love. To relate to others as he is related to us. But his will for us is even more specific than that, friends. Take a look at what he says in verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Let me drill down on specifics for us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. That's what it means to live holy and blameless lives. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. You see, it's not enough to stay as we are. We can't excuse sinful attitudes or habits which so easily creep into our lives. Being forgiven, being cleansed means that we need to pursue holiness. We have to intentionally and consciously get rid of envy and slander, of hypocrisy and hate. Of every form of deceitful attitude which is contrary to living a life of love. Do you see? Oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Can you see how Christ is calling us to love? That's his will for us now. We've been chosen before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And living a life of love is what that now means. Unfortunately, we still fail. But that is his plan and purpose for us. We have been cleansed so that we can be changed. We have been made perfect forever by a perfect act of sacrifice and yet we're still being made holy. So let's recommit ourselves to that. Yes? For the glory of his holy name. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we worship you, we praise you and we bless you. Not that we have anything in ourselves to bless you with except our words of thanks. For we are a sinful people in thought, in word, in deed, in not just what we do, but what we fail to do. Lord, we thank you so much that Christ, the unblemished lamb, his blood has washed away our sin and made us perfect forever. 
Lord Jesus, we worship you and we praise you as our great high priest and our perfect sacrifice. Lord, we are so humbled by your spirit who has challenged us and spoken to us so clearly to your, through your word this morning. In conclusion, Lord, we want to pray for two things. For those that are here this morning, Lord, that came in this morning not believing, we pray that you would do that supernatural work of your spirit, opening their ears and giving them faith. That they might be born again and taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord, for those that have, of us that have already done this, who have already been given this great gift, we pray that you would keep us from all hypocrisy, envy, malice and slander. Forgive us, Lord, for again and cleanse us for how we've done this. That, Lord, make us into your likeness and image, holy and blameless. But most of all, Lord, create in us lives of love. Lord, we just want to thank you that you loved us and that you will always love us and you'll never let us go. Thank you, Lord. Thank you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let's stand and sing in response to God's word. Please stand. <laughs>